Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at behavioural and social sciences and how they're being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. We've done a fair few of these now, and I'm hoping that people are finding the podcast useful, or at the very least, interesting. Uh, the, the aim of the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast is really in the name. The BSPHN and I really want to interview people who are working in the fields of behavioural science, whether in industry, academia or health. Uh, learning a bit about who they are and most importantly how what they do is having an impact in the real world. Our guests so far have been great and I really think we've given a good account of some of the great work that's going on in the behavioural sciences and to be honest it's been a lot of fun getting to chat with them so I'm really pleased that we've, we've gone ahead with the project. Uh, this is one of the best things about joining the BSPHN uh, because you get a lot of chances to meet informally with people from academia, from industry, from public health, uh, through lots of different events and also to hear about the latest news in behavioural science just through being a member. Uh, you can join the BSPHN for £25 if you're working and £10 if you're not, including if you're a student, so there's no good excuse not to join. So today's guest is both a member of the BSPHN and also works for PHE who are a partner of the BSPHN and can regularly be found at their events, so they're worth going along to. Dr. Tim Chadbourne is Head of Behavioural Insights and Evaluation Lead for Public Health England, establishing and leading a team to undertake robustly evaluated interventions and advise on the application of behavioural economics, psychology and evaluation to public health. He's a core member of the Cross-Government Behavioural Insights Network and Cross-Government Evaluation Group. With about 25 years of experience in health, he's previously worked in the UK with the Department of Health and the Health Protection Agency and internationally in a partnership between Harvard University and the Ministry of Health in Botswana. He is Vice President of the UK Evaluation Society. And Tim and I used to work together at PHE uh, and I have to actually thank Tim because uh, Tim is actually the person who introduced me to in, in, uh, behavioural insights and behavioural economics uh, generally and that's what got me sort of going and thinking about it a lot. Uh, so I don't know if you knew that Tim but technically this podcast is your fault. <laughs> uh, so welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. So I have to take responsibility for that also. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so welcome Tim. Um, if you could start by just telling us a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I think when I was thinking about this, I think I'd start from kind of where I am now and sort of work backwards a little bit. So uh, as Stu said, I'm sort of heading up this team in behavioral science uh, in Public Health England, which is PHE for anyone who missed uh, that abbreviation. Uh, Public Health England is a, an executive agency of the Department of Health and, and Social Care. So I've um, been in this post for about six and a half years now since Public Health England was formed in uh, April 2013, and um, we came together as a new organization. Um, and I came in to set up this behavioral insights team and, and work out what it was, um, working very closely with the um, Cabinet Office behavioral insights team for the first uh, few years of that process as well. So that's what we've been doing, and I'm sure we'll get more into the details of uh, what that is and what that looks like, uh, and what some of our work, uh, what, what some of our work is. But also, um, if it's sort of maybe to take you back to before that, I was in the Department of Health itself. I was working on a program called uh, the Family Nurse Partnership, which is an in incredible program uh, for pregnant uh, teenage women. Um, so do look, at, do look into that if you're interested. I, I was a principal research analyst in, in the team there in the, in the Department of Health. And what was it called? Family Nose? Family Nurse Partnership. Oh, family Nurse. Okay, sorry, I misheard you. <laughs> <laughs> family Nurse Partnership. Um, yeah, before that, um, I was working in, in, this, in this project in Botswana. So I was seconded from the Harvard School of Public Health uh, to the Ministry of Health in Botswana 
through an organization, sort of a partnership organization called the Botswana Harvard uh, Partnership. Um, and in that work, we were doing a lot of work around HIV. Uh, it's, the, it's the country with the, at the time was the second highest prevalence in the world. So about one in f every four adults uh, have HIV uh, in Botswana. And we were working out what we could do at the national level and the different programs and the quality improvement um, and the sort of population health approach that we could sort of take to um, mitigating against that, that epidemic in the country. And then before that, I worked at the Health Protection Agency. Um, uh, and there I worked, again, in sort of a kind of population health. It was very much uh, HIV and sexual health. Again, um, working closely with the Department of Health and also clinicians around the country. Um, thinking quite a lot about uh, clinical improvement and what sort of how we could use the data and information from national services in terms of some of the feedback we could provide to the system uh, to help improve the quality of care, really. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, while I was there, I, was, I did my, my PhD uh, at the Royal Free and UCL College, which is also sort of a population health, population health focus. And how, so you mentioned the Botswana Harvard thing. How did that come about? You were at Harvard at the time, or you were... No, so that was it. That was, I applied for a job, basically. Oh, right, so okay. I've been working um, here at the Health Protection Agency for uh, quite a few years and looking for a, a bit of a change, very passionate about um, HIV and how it affects uh, families and so many different aspects of care and equality and mm. legal aspects and population movements across the world and all these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, and I was keen uh, to to um, work in Africa for a while, you know, where Amazing. where the epidemic is really... Um, has a major impact on on life expectancy and so many other aspects of society. So, um, yeah, I applied for a job and um, I was kind of interviewed over the phone with a guy from Harvard uh, and uh, and seconded to to the Ministry of Health. Yeah, and ended up it was initially I think one one or two years. Ended up staying just over three years. Um, embedded really in the in the ministry. It's one of the only <laughs> one of the only white people in the in the ministry. Can I say um, you're also quite fair as very well. Mixed How did you get on in <laughs> Africa? <laughs> um, it was really interesting culturally, socially, um, and sort of technically as well. Um, yeah, I could talk for ages about that, but okay. I don't know well, if that's let's, let's exactly what people want to hear. No, well, people are interested. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. I think people are interested in how what people's journeys look like because mm. one of the things that is clear from all the people that I've I've interviewed so far is there is no real clear-cut path or there certainly hasn't been for people who are now involved in behavioral sciences mm. it's sort of now obviously becoming a bigger thing but the people who find themselves in it now have come from all manner of different things and and uh, and, and also they they a lot of it was just serendipity or just like you say like i just applied for a job and, and all of a sudden you, you moved into this this area so i think that's what people are interested in yeah there's an aspect of that maybe just worth um expanding on a little bit um in terms of particularly the mixture of my team, but also the mixture mm. of teams across government um, is really interesting because, like you say, we've it sometimes feels to me that there are two broad avenues and, or, or sets of skills and approaches and not exclusive to those, but in the kind of behavior change world. And to say we're also very much interested in the wider social sciences and how they have a lot to contribute, but particularly around sort of specifically around behaviour change, there's quite a strong health psychology 
um, drive uh, and people who have a very and that that brings a very richness but um, and, and people with academic background. There's also a lot of people coming up, I think, um, with a more of the sort of behavioral economics, sometimes with a more um, private sector background, private sector interest. Mm. Um, and actually what we're finding in my team is that um, a mix of skills between sort of health psychology, behavioral economics, uh, research and analysis, you know, there's, it's, a, yeah. it's about having a bit of a multidisciplinary team. And I'd like to have a broader array of disciplines in there if I had a broader team. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also if we look across government, it's been very interesting how um, there's a kind of behavioral insights network which doesn't want currently at the moment to sort of too strongly affiliate itself with a particular uh, profession across government mm. because it wants to be open to people from different disciplines and backgrounds coming in and, and is open to kind of what they can bring to kind of behavioral insights. And so I think that's for me one of the aspects around using the term behavioral insights is that it doesn't particularly have a too many connotations in terms of uh, what it, there's not, there's no definition of what behavioral insights is in a way, as opposed to applying yeah. behavioral science to policy and practice, you might say. So it, it leaves it open to a, a multidisciplinary or a disciplinary approach. There's, there's that's a good point. And there's something that um, I was listening to, I think this week, maybe last week, um, in fact, two things. One of them was about academia, and um, it was about how you, how we approach problems. Uh, and if we want to fix problems, we've got to look at the, the problem itself rather than uh, the tools that you're going to use before you sort of identify what the problem is. Um, and and the, the example in academia was you don't have a problems department, you have a psychology department, you have a physiology department, you have a sociology department, and they're all specialists within those areas. And actually, what, what I, I think, what I, what I heard when you were describing that was some of that in this context is we've got behavior to change and that should happen from various different aspects. And so it doesn't, it's not helpful for you to become just a psychologist, for example. It's, for, it's a good idea for you to be across social sciences and, and other stuff as well, including policy and, and other elements of the system that are impacting um, on people's behavior. And the other one is that behavior is behavior at the end of the day. And everyone here, in, we're in the PHE offices in, in Wellington House at the moment, and everyone here is trying to change people's behavior, whether it's from sexual health, obesity, smoking, whoever but they're not necessarily linked up that, you know, they are focused on their issue and they're all probably trying to bring behavioral insights into that issue. So are you, are you in your current role sitting centrally supporting all of those to put behavioral insights in, or are you more aligned to specific work streams? No, that's a really good question. I think, um, hopefully very much the former. That's where we're, um, that's where we should be. That's where we're, um, that's how we're trying to work. So, I mean, as you say, we work, um, people with you know, dietitian, dietitians or nutritionists um, who have a really good understanding of behavior change. People, you, you mentioned people like from sexual health or so many other areas of um, health improvement. Um, particularly people, there's a lot of people in public health, obviously, who have um, sort of a health promotion mm -hmm. background, which mm -hmm. covers so much of this as well. Um, and I think in some ways we might be different in that than some of the other policy areas across across government which is quite interesting um to some extent um we have economists obviously here as well um who are really sort of really developing their understanding of behavioral economics and mm -hmm. and the sort of more 
psychology aspects of economics, if, if you like. So I want to ask you something about that, actually, because uh, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about behavioral economics recently. And, and someone said something really interesting, I think, on a podcast. Or something. So I think it, there's a podcast in, in the US called Behavioral Grooves, and I think it was these guys, these two academics. And, and they were saying, we're saying that we're irrational. Behavioral economics proves irrationality to, to a large extent. Like that's, that's, it shows our, our, the, what the economic model suggests and what we actually do. That's, that's irrational. But if what we actually do is what we actually do, then isn't it the, econ- the economists that are wrong? Because they're trying to predict human behavior, but they're not predicting it right because they're predicting it using rational um, economics. And we, we're not rational. I've just done a circular argument. There's a tautology <laughs> in some way. But do you understand what I mean? Like, well... Uh, it, aren't they wrong? <laughs> and, and they should be... <laughs> I have to be careful about saying yeah, anyone's of course, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, um, yeah, I don't think it's anyone's wrong. And I think there's, there's never... You get uh, comments like, you know, no, mo- no model is correct. You know, every mm. model is wrong in some way. And things that, you know, there's no truth. Everything helps... Uh, the approximations of the truth are models that help us think about problems and what drives, you know, what are the influences on behavior and what drives problems and how we can solve them i think i think my understanding is in terms of economics the way it's moved from a more you know rational models Mm. to a a, a better a better approximation of, of of behavior in terms of the drivers and influences so i think um if i understand your question right i think uh i think the use of behavioral economics and understanding and rationality and being able to predict people's behavior more appropriately and obviously there's a a huge amount of experimental work now that's going into this so it's very much looking at behavioral outcomes it's not looking necessarily at the sort of cognitive processes that Mm, mm. um that drive that or the sort of the, the theory of change in a way you know it's there's a very strong sort of test and you know, we have some th- some theories from behavioral economics and we have some strong theories that have been um, proven uh, repeatedly in different populations. And then so can we apply some of that theory and evidence to new and different situations and different problems? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting. OK, great. Thanks, Tim. Could you could you tell the listeners a little bit more about what your current role is as head of behavioral insights at Public Health England and what the purpose of your team is in, in, and your role in that? Yeah, absolutely. Um I'm sure we'll come into a bit more detail later, but I, I often think about it in a function in terms of um, five areas. So one of them is uh, primarily around a behavioral analysis. Or we, you know, we call it a strategic behavioral analysis, and we've been to kind of developing this approach over the last few years. It's largely based around um, the use of the behavior change wheel and those associated methodologies to think about broad strategic um, areas of policy, if you like. So a, a behavioral science perspective that might complement what a, a policymakers might get from economists uh, within their government. So that sort of looks at basically two things. One is what is what are the behaviors and tries to specify what are the behaviors in a policy area? What are the um, influences on those behaviors? And much of that is done from the literature. Um, we could do primary research as well to, to strengthen that. And then, um, on the other hand, um, looking at what interventions and policies and, and programs are already being delivered, what services. So what we do is, um, on the other side, is to look at the, the policies, programs, services um, that are being delivered and think about that using the behaviour change wheel policy categories. 
um, to really understand uh, what is the system doing that might be affecting uh, the behavior and the behavior set of behaviors that we're interested in. And then the third step uh, of that is really sort of putting those together to, um, to really try and under identify gaps and opportunities for how uh, we may be able to strengthen those interventions and policies and programs that we're delivering. So it's trying to have a, a sort of slightly longer term strategic approach to, to behavior change. Um, so that's the first key area. The, sec the, the next two are, are quite closely associated because the first is probably around intervention design. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's often in this space uh, tends to be much more of the, um, from a, maybe from a behavioral economics approach, if you like, is what we're interested in, I suppose, in this aspect is probably areas of the health that haven't been heavily addressed through uh, sort of academic research and other areas. So kind of low-cost interventions um, that we can uh, use to change people's health. And that, that we kind of think about those in some ways as kind of demonstrating, demonstrated projects for how behavioral economics can be applied to, to public health. And, and do you so have like that, an example of, of one of those? Like a, a Yeah, I can definitely, I can come back to that in a minute. Okay, okay. There's, great, a, there's a few of those. Well, I know people yeah. like to kind of see some of the kind of what does it mean yes um so definitely we'll come back to that so um i think that those are two different aspects um but they're often very entwined together the kind of intervention design bit mm -hmm. and um and the evaluation right. aspect um the another aspect is around um, advice so we we kind of provide advice to colleagues within public health england and you were kind of talking before about the different colleagues yeah. and uh, we were talking very much about some of the health improvement colleagues so diet and obesity um smoking those types of areas of, of behaviors mm -hmm. but i think it's also one of the things i try and actually highlight a lot is this is also really important in the health protection space yeah. um whether it's sort of uh, vaccination whether it's tb control whether it's, uh, you know, the individual public out there and we're thinking mm. about their behaviours, but it's also very much the kind of clinician, health professional behaviours at different parts of the system. So that's, it's really key to me that we don't only focus on the kind of uh, traditional kind of aspects of individual behaviour changes, it's sometimes yeah. um, called. So, yeah, lots of advice to uh, Department of Health and Social Care, um, colleagues, local government around the system, um, NHS England and talking across those different organizations about, about behavioral science. Um, another area is very much around uh, linked to our behavioral and social science strategy, which we published last year. And again, yeah. we might come back to that in more, more detail, but um, we published a strategy, very much a collaborative piece of work. I think there are about 40 organizations, including um, the kind of statutory bodies um, like ourselves uh, and um, and other colleagues like Health Education England, very much involved, very much sort of local government association and um, association directors of public health, um, but then also working closely with um, some of the funding sort of research organisations uh, like NIHR and MRC and Welcome. Then we have the Royal Colleges, uh, and then also a lot of professional societies. Um, like the UK Society for Behavioural Medicine, the Society for Social Medicine, um, the British Sociological Association, really trying to bring people together to think about how um, the, the behavioural and social sciences can be better applied to, to public health. So that's a, that was a big piece of work, and that kind of continues in terms of... Um, we, we laid out in that not just sort of an aspect of what these sciences are and how they can contribute to public health but some sort of action plan a bit of a roadmap in terms of what 
as an as a system, we can be sort of doing to to strengthen and embed behavioural science and public health. And so where where can people find that document? That's online. It's on gov.uk. But if yep. you if you search behavioural and social science strategy, yeah, um, you you should easily find that. Um, and that's that's we're finding that's really had a, a great effect in terms of kind of. Um, to some extent, giving people a license and sort of mm, giving people yeah. like you know, it's um, go ahead, get get crack and have a go, um, build up your networks, um, yeah. and we'll come back to that in terms of um, the behavioural science uh, public health network has been a key part of that. Um, and a quick shout out to to Jim McManus and Michelle Constable um, from the behavioural science public health network who are kind of key authors on that um, and have you know close partnership working working with us. So and then, the, yes, I suppose the final thing we do, we do a little bit of training. We've run a number of master classes that we we deliver out through um, PHE centres um, for people from the uh, local government and NHS to kind of come along to and sort of get an introductory day around, you know, what is what is behavioural science, what is behavioural science. And with a view to what, they, they then can go off and study it further or can they do something after that, that day directly, do you think? No, absolutely. It's a good question. I mean, we understand that in a day you can't necessarily build skills. Mm. Um, you know, we appreciate that from a behavioral science perspective. So it's, I think it's kind of introducing people to uh, behavioral insights, behavioral science, g- explaining what some of the language is, what some of the terms are, what it is and what it's not, um, mm. Mm. some of the difference between some of these different approaches that help people understand uh what some of the different approaches can have be applied to different problems. And then I think it's, yeah, they can go away more and, and, and explore more if they want to. Um, quite often we're encouraging people to kind of, uh, if possible, kind of uh, form a bit of networks and, um, you know, short share emails so they can get in touch. They might have short shared aims. Um, very much, um, I think, with the Behavioral Science Public Health Network, we're developing um, regional hubs around the country. Um, and we've been sort of partnering with BSPHN and, and providing some support for that process, um, as well as Health Education England very much um, supporting now, to um, really sort of bring people together, mm. give much a bit more in-depth, um, and, yeah. and really sort of create communities of practice. And peer learning from each other. and, and Yeah, definitely. And, and really importantly in this, I think it's not just... It's about connecting up um, people from different backgrounds, as we were saying before. So it's it's academics, it's public health practitioners. It, there may be people from the private sector who kind of mm. want to join in with that, and people from the third sector and voluntary community. Um, so people all have an, imp- an interest in applying uh, behavioral science. And all of it, I think, is about a belief that we can do, we can improve public health outcomes. Um, we can reduce inequalities and we can probably improve the kind of efficiency and the value to the public purse through the use, you know, the better use of behavioral science, social science um, in public health practice. It's interesting because I, I, as being, being a provider in the public health industry now, I um, see the word behavioral science a lot. I'm really interested in behavioral science. I call myself more of a behavioral science enthusiast than anything else. Um, but I, I read books and papers about it all the time. And, and I see in lots of tenders now and in procurement phases for, for various different um, organisations that they put the word behavioural science in it. And, and you can speak to people about behavioural science and they'll say, they'll use that term. But it's become a little bit of a buzzword in some, some respects, a lot like other words have in, in health over the years. 
what what do you what do you say to that? What what it how do how should local authorities be using the term behavioural science if they're asking for people to come and do behavioural science on their behalf? So for a, for a, a, a provider, for example. Yeah, we've got a. Um, I mean, we've been thinking about that a lot. I think we have a lot of discussions around that in a way. And it's it's a difficult one because it's a bit it's this quest discussion we had a little bit before around kind of a, a broad church and then people from different disciplines coming in. Um, we are doing some thinking and in, and in the behavioral and social science strategy, we did sort of put some points there around sort of the, the quality of the, the workforce. And mm. we have been doing some thinking around sort of other kind of competencies uh, or or self-validation sort of things that could help um, raise the quality of uh, the use of behavioral science in, in public health. Um, and all, but also very much help if you're a, a local government, local authority mm. or CCG, NHS, wherever you might be in the system or third sector, and you're interested in bringing in those skills, um, giving a little bit of a guidance to kind of make it easy in a traditional kind of behavioral <laughs> economics way, how can you make it easy for um, for the system to to uh, access good quality yeah. uh, behavioral science expertise, and and that can be done in lots of different ways. Um, but if we can kind of give a simple simple guide, I um, think that'd be helpful. But I mean, do you have? I I, you, I see you speak at a lot of conferences. I, I wonder if I mean I wonder how much of your time is spent speaking at stuff actually, um, but. Um, do you, do you think of your role as a as sort mm. of a I wouldn't say guardian of of making sure behavioural science is done well, but but making sure that people understand from an evidence based perspective for, from for PHE what behavioural science is and how people could use it. I I definitely I think there's an aspect. Of, I d the guardian is not not the right no. word. <laughs> no, I can't think of. But that maybe one. an advocate, um, an advocate, and sort of talking to lots of people from different disciplines mm. um, and trying to therefore encourage the use. I think, like you say, there is a bit of a wave. Um, and when there's a kind of a trend, if you like, you know, you, there can be sort of... That can be jumped on uh, yeah. from different um, angles, if you like. And, um, so what's, so what, what I think the key thing is trying to kind of show, explore ourselves uh, and better understand some of the different frameworks and approaches to behavior change and then try to share that and, and encourage other people to share across the system again mm. um, the different ways and frameworks and approaches that behavior change can be realized. So, what, I mean, two of the areas that we're really interested in at the moment, I think there's a there's a big area around sort of systems mm -hmm. and systems approaches. Yeah. Um, that was that was a, a big discussion at one of the recent Public Health England conferences, um, along with behavioral science. And so how does this kind of some of these systems approaches kind of fit together mm. with behavioral science? And if you're thinking about um, complex systems and, and adaptive loops and all these types of mm. things and feedback and actors and all this kind of emergence within systems, then how does that fit with uh, with behavioral science? And so... We've kind of been doing some thinking about that. We talked to some academics about that, and I think that stimulates ideas. Um, and so there's quite a lot of. I think what's exciting about a lot of this field is a lot of innovation going on. Yeah. Um, but but it's really important that 
that systems work is really important because we recognize that it's not just about individual behavior change and some mm -hmm. of the, the the biggest impact and potential cost effectiveness that we might get would be at some of the kind of um, higher levels if you like of the, of the system um, mm. and the more kind of upstream work um, I appreciate some of the terms are laden with other you know, no, 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 I, I, I but, think um, people will understand. It's, it's but, that's, but that's important to us, so thinking about that kind of, going back to what I was saying about the sort of uh, strategic behavioral analysis work, that kind of more complex um, systems. And then I suppose the other sort of big wave and trend that's happening is kind of tech and digital. Yeah. Um, and so that's fascinating, obviously, for, for behavioral scientists to, to what extent that um, can facilitate behavior change, can give people access to stuff on demand in their pocket. And um, for the sheer, sheer ability of it to give volume of, you know, you can get things out to m lots of people relatively cheaply and get data back super quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, the use of data and, I mean, fascinating work going on around just-in-time interventions mm -hmm. um, that's going on. So uh, we're also working closely with NICE. So I'm, I'm on the NICE um, committee for uh, looking at the guidance for digital behaviour change interventions. Yeah. Um, and that's that's fascinating. Which are already being asked for in industry now that you know public health teams are asking for digital behaviour change interventions, but in my view they're just they're not up to scratch just yet to be able to come in and replace the face to face services at the moment. Yeah, and that goes goes back to what you were saying a little while ago. I think people uh what's sort of in the public in the public world, I think sort of behavioural insights, behavioural economics aspects uh, and the popular you know the books that are coming mm -hmm. out and follow you know the nudge and um etc they're great and they create a, a real wave of interest but it's also saying there are other complementary tools yeah. um how do we use these together and how do we use the right tool for the right problem so i think that's going back to what you were saying before and um, there's a lot of interest from industry around behavioral science and um we've been doing quite a lot of work uh, internally and and with um the, the private sector who are commissioned to do some of the work to kind of think about how to embed behavioural science in the development of digital interventions. And do you think there's like a, um, a zeitgeist effect? Because you talked about it in waves. So there's a zeitgeist at the moment of... of so, so saying that, you mentioned nudge. So why, for example, did nudge, which is actually quite a sticky concept, um, to use a psychological term, it's like a psychologically sticky concept, nudge, compared to someone like George Lowenstein's work, which was equally as impactful as Thaler, but Thaler won the Nobel Prize for Nudge. And do you think that's got something to do with the fact that it was just so sticky in terms of the, the public just got it straight away, then they created the Nudge unit, which wasn't technically, I suppose, I don't know if it was technically called the Nudge unit, but certainly that's what it was known as. Um, do you think that there's that um, popularity or salience to it that, that means that stuff like Nudge gets mm. more, more um, attention than, than some other areas that could be potentially quite useful? I, th I think it's, I think in a simple, simple terms, I think probably yes. You know, I think there's, it's, it's fascinating to see um, aspects of kind of implementation science and an uptake mm. of, of, of different um, thoughts, uh, paradigms and principles. Um, and that's really important. And it's really important for us in our role as Public Health England because a lot of what our role is, is about trying to sometimes bridge uh, and help translate from academic research into uh, into policy and practice. Mm. 
um, and uh, as an evidence, you know, evidence-based organisation trying to support that. We know it can take a huge amount of time for things to get taken up into practice, mm -hmm. but then some things kind of do spread, you know, that kind of go viral, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Um, and nobody's, nobody really knows what drives that as, as far as we know. But, I mean, the sort of simple concepts. I mean, I think, I think it's been a multiple things. I think the, the Cabinet Office um, Behavioural Insights team um, was was uh, and David Harpin's work in this area is really kind of because it's gone global. Yeah. So that yeah. Uh, that has been a real key in terms of driving interest in this area, mm. um, and being able to show people from a robust evaluation, a randomised control trial, this is the results of what works, mm. has, is really powerful, and people people get it very easily. Mm -hmm. um, so. It, it is interesting, and I have had similar conversations with academics um, in different areas of sort of behavioral and social science around the different uptake and value that is given to some of these different yeah. uh, professional disciplines. Right, so to move us um, from the academic and, and the, um, the public health world that you're involved in at the moment, how, how does the work that you're doing actually translate to people on the ground in the real world? Tim. Yeah, so that's that's great. I mean, obviously, uh, we hope that some of the sort of strategic work, like you know, filters through and, and influences policy and practice. Mm -hmm. But and also in terms of um, what I was talking about before, um, particular areas, kind of two and three, which were kind of intervention design and, and evaluation. Um, we've done a number of largely kind of trials, um, but there's a number of different areas that um, that we've been working on over the last few years. Uh, one of the recent uh, positive outcomes that we've seen is really around cervical screening. And that's mm. been a great um, positive story, I think, in terms of we, we run our projects with um, in, in Hillingdon with, with um, Hounslow Local Authority and um, Imperial NHS Trust. And um, we, we looked at kind of sending reminders to, to women who are invited to cervical screening, understanding that a lot of people have good intentions. And one of the key things in this area is trying to help people bridge their kind of um, intention behavior gap or intention action gap. So lots of people have good intentions to maybe go to their screening, but a, a reminder could be really useful. So just sending a text message um, could be really helpful. So we ran a randomized controlled trial uh, with different sort of arms, and we found out that a sort of a GP-endorsed reminder message was the most effective um, that work was done a couple of years ago uh, and I think one of the benefits of where we sit in public health England is we have close links to the, the sort of policy and practice so the pathway to impact is, is, is relative, can be relatively short so mm. we presented to the, the screening uh, research board and, um, and one of the things that's been done recently is across London they've implemented this and um, there's a nice public health England sort of health matters blog Mm. around this um over so it's implemented i think over six months of implementing this kind of text message reminder um they saw a similar impact of around four to five percent increase in in uptake of the cervical screens and that equated over um i think it was six months or six to nine months of around thirteen thousand additional women maybe turning up to screening yes and if you think about um the positive impact of um, what that means in terms of, um, you know, morbidity and mortality. It's mm. really, it really does... Um, Versus the cost. Significant, yeah, I and mean, the cost is negligible. And I think that's where I was saying there's, there's not a lot of 
sometimes there's not a lot of academic research. There's a huge amount of money that goes into academic research and not all of it, or maybe not a lot of it, goes into kind of simple, simple fixes and that kind yeah. of marginal incremental improvement that we can get in terms of um, transforming some of our services. I think that's a really interesting point. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the people I spoke to recently who is a behavioral scientist in industry had made a really good point, which was we're all used to, because you're, you're, we haven't spoken about it too much, but you're also, you've got a role as an evaluation lead um, within PHM, particularly from the behavioral science perspective. And one of the, one of the um, things that this person that I was chatting with the other day um, was saying was that in traditional um, studies, we, we've, we've all got this sort of 95% confidence interval or 5% confidence interval that we, that we all work to. But in behavioral sciences, because we're doing it in broad numbers, do we, do we need to have that same level of confidence? If something isn't harming the, the population that you're, you're providing an intervention for, but it's effective in 50% of people, is it still not worth doing if it's low cost and effective in 50%? I think this is, I mean, if, it's, if it works in 50%, hopefully you'll see a, uh, a significant increase across the whole population in terms of that 95% confidence interval, right? Mm. If, it, if, if the other half of the population have a negative impact, um, so that overall mm. there's no impact, then um, that's where I think you need to think about, I think that that's, in some ways, that's where a lot of the potential of digital is coming in some ways around mm. some of the tailoring and personalization. I think that's where that's where it starts getting really interesting. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled. <laughs> <laughs> with that. There's lots of work we're doing now. It's really interesting stuff we're doing. As I was mentioning about embedding behavioural science and digital around um, work that that Public Health England is doing. It was in the is in the strategy around um, uh, sort of diet and obesity mm-hmm. for families, digital kind of support that we could provide to to families and t- taking that forward. That was in the childhood obesity plan. Uh, as well there's work um that we're doing around um, the health checks and we've over the last sort of five or six years we've had quite a long program of work around the health checks where we've um again sort of looked at so many different aspects of the program from the letters that go out to text message reminders and primers looking at um, videos in waiting rooms and see if they sort of appear to have an effect Mm -hmm. thought about prompts on it systems that might um sort of nudge the professionals to kind of invite people so and all of those most a lot of those have shown some impact and they're all sort of low cost um, do, do, so can i ask you a question when you do those do you do them in isolation to see exactly what impact each one of those has or do you do them as a group because there could be a, a marginal gains impact of doing them together but it wouldn't necessarily be obvious which exactly had had the direct impact that's a big question we we discuss all the time we um i guess in a trial I think largely we kind of look at different aspects of the delivery or the user journey individually. Mm. Um, and But within that, you could look at different sort of um, sort of behavioral uh, techniques that you might, might want to use. And if we have enough power, if there's enough population in the vicinity mm. or in the system, then we can start doing sort of factorial designs when we can try and tease out some of these things. But often... Often we don't within the health service, um, and to get a response within a reasonable amount of time. So um, it, t- you know, I think it tends to be between I don't know maybe two or four arms in a trial. I yeah. suppose um, to some extent we might have one arm of that, which is a little bit of a multiple things mm. contained in mm. that uh, to see if there is a sort of synergistic effect of different different techniques. 
we, what we, I suppose what we're doing is not so much trying to understand, as I was saying, the sort of theory of change and the specific effect of different behavior change techniques. We're not sort of doing academic research in that way. It's very mm. much trying to say, how can we probably get the best impact possible? Yeah. Um, okay. but, but understanding that, that, that there's a level of simplicity that is required as well in these things as well. And so we can't throw hundreds of different behavior change techniques. That's not going to be effective necessarily. So it's, yeah. it's a complicated discussion between the kind of the power you have in a trial and uh, the types of evidence that you have to design the yeah. interventions and what, what do you think, where the, where's the evidence pointing is likely to give you the, the biggest effect. Yeah. Um, so some of the work around the health checks and the uptake of the health checks has been really powerful. We've seen some really substantial increases of just sort of changing the letter, which yeah. is like no cost, mm-hmm. um, and adding text message reminders. Uh, we've tried to look at the cost aspect, so in some aspect of the kind of return on investment that mm-hmm. local areas might get, because the key thing with doing a demonstration project is you want to be able to give people at local level who might be commissioning those services some idea of the return on investment they might get yeah. from from doing these sorts of things. So that's been really important. Uh, another aspect of kind of demonstration projects is kind of looking at different um, channels or modes of delivery, if you like. So um, what I mean by that is, as well as sometimes le- letters and text messages are quite easy to kind of work with and kind of run nudge trials, but mm-hmm. it's important to show that sort of behavioral science, that's not the only way that behavioral insights, behavioral science can be yeah. used. So we've done some interesting um, work in um, hospital food environments, um, thinking about um, how to help uh, people have healthier choices in terms of their, their food and drink selection. So we worked in a number of different hospitals. Uh, we thought about, we looked at the different types of uh, ways that people access food and drink. So the vending machine, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a trolley that kind of goes around, mm-hmm. which um, uh, which we didn't actually do any work on, but we very much looked at the kind of shops and, and canteens kind of that are in hospital sites. And obviously, you know, the NHS has influence over these um, settings. So, and there was some work that NHS England was doing around um, the health and well-being of its staff uh, and thinking about its the health, you know, the healthiness of its estate. So it kind of fed into that in terms of policy. Some of the things we did because we can't really run a randomised controlled trial in a sort of hospital canteen or something. Um, these are more of a sort of before and after analysis using interrupted time series um, analysis to look at sort of changes. Um, obviously, there are sort of seasonal of seasonal changes in terms of what people are buying as well. Which means just for people who might not know, myself included. Oh, so it means it's so basically um, you can do a before and after, which kind of sort of looks at an average of this is what was being sold before and this is what's happening afterwards, but. Yeah. Um, you're likely with that to get changes because of seasonality and because of other things that are happening. So if you can look at a trend that is going on beforehand and then the trend afterwards, Mm -hmm. you might see how when you make an intervention, you get a a change in that that trend. Rather than just a snapshot, this is before and this is after. Exactly. And then the other aspect of that is if you can also look at a sort of another product which you haven't intervened on, um, oh yeah, as a comparator. As a comparator, and you yeah. can look at the trend over that over the time. So even though with seasonality and everything else, things going to change, yeah. you should be able to kind of see the, whether your intervention has had an effect or not. So that's a way we can use some of the evaluative techniques to look at um, some of these things as rigorously as, as possible. So we did things like um, um, moving the healthier products nearer to the entrance mm-hmm. and um, putting confectionery and crisps like behind pillars, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. moving them to a less accessible places. Um, 
I think kind of offers on on water, so sort of uh, financial incentives for people to buy water and other drinks, a number of different things. But I mean, many of them, um, some of the results are a bit equivocal, and we mm-hmm. gain the learning from what we do in these um, spaces. But one of the key things uh, that comes out of a lot of this work is that. Um, and one of the important things for us to look at was the economic viability for the businesses, because it's yeah. fine for us to kind of have uh, do great research where we can say, well, it's we can reduce the number of um, or less healthy, unhealthy products that people are buying in terms of their food and drink. But um, if that means the business is going to go broke, yeah. um, then that's not um, really going to be a sustainable uh, model for change. So um, the, I think the good thing is some of these simple changes... Um, don't seem to have a, a particularly negative effect on sales and potentially even like increase sales. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, and, and that's the type of work that we're kind of really interested in doing and encouraging others to do as well. Right. So we can't, yeah. we can't do all of it on our own. Um, but a lot of this, a lot of the work we do in terms of strengthening the system and trying to link up academics and, and practitioners is, is, is finding opportunities where this type of work could, could be done and do you think that would ever um become a a a document to i'm not even going to say industry i mean individual businesses to say look here's the evidence if you did this it wouldn't hurt your sales and you might feel like it might because you've got sales of x y and z in your in your store but here's the evidence to say it wouldn't here's how to give it a go, here's how to make the change, and here's how to test whether it's impacting your sales. Because there is likely to be some Im- impact initially, at least, but over time it must it must sort of even out. Must well, it? a negative impact. Well, I mean, if they're... Might ga- be a positive impact. Yeah, okay. It, in, it, I think that's bad. what we're saying. You know, so some of these saying? things, um, some of these things, it seems to be fairly negligible. Yeah. Um, and it's, we, we don't have a... It's, it's not a high... It's not the strongest level of evidence you you would want. You know, some of these are relatively small scale, but there's, we've done them as rigorously as, as as we could, really, with the resources that we have. But um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's even can be positive in terms of sales. So one of the things we've done, and again, there's a kind of piece around it on the PHE uh, website around the vending machines. The piece of work was initially done with Leeds University Teaching Hospital and, and Selector in terms of the vending machines mm-hmm. where we move things around. They, they immediately afterwards rolled things out to um, all of their vending machines across the country. Um, so now that's, that's actually an incredibly good use of your time to be involved in projects like that. Yeah, if we can. And we, I mean, we, are, um, we, you know, we are working with a lot of different sort of collaborators um, in different areas. And that's exactly the type of thing we want to, to, to demonstrate mm. um, and encourage other people to take a, a similar approach. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so the what I wanted to um, obviously you're in the central government team for um, behavioural insights, and and there are more and more different roles growing in, in in industry and in in academia and in public health in the behavioural sciences. What advice would you give to someone if they were looking to get into behavioural mm. science um, at any of those different levels or are they different? What, would, you, would your advice be different to get into those different spaces? That's a really good question. I think one of the one of the best ways, and it depends where you are in your career and everything, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Well, let's, let's think, do two. Then. I think one of let's the best starting ways. out, starting <laughs> out. So they're just 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 going to uni. Now, what should they study? Opening up. I don't know. I don't know if I have the answer ready. Um, 
I think for a lot of people, um, there are there's lots of different master's courses which are kind mm -hmm. of um, developing and have developed over the last few years. So lots of different um, universities across the country are offering either a master's in behavior change or behavioral science or behavioral economics mm -hmm. or something um, of that nature. And they all have different approaches um, and people come out with different skills. Um, but I think that's a really good way. I mean, I, th I think some sort of um, grounding in, in theory and evidence is, is really, um, really powerful. A lot of people learn a lot of this um, sort of on the job, I think. And I was talk particularly talking about the, um, uh, the private sector. It, it, it seems that a lot, you know, people get a lot of, a lot of knowledge uh, and experience through, through practice. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just as valuable. I'd say um, it, it, that seems to be very much more um, the sort of behavioral economics yeah. kind of uh, nudgy type of um, approach that people seem to sort of pick up on and mm -hmm. that unless of the kind of broader, broader behavioral science techniques, although some of that is, is creeping out there, I think, and people yeah. are kind of um, exploring more. So I think a master's, there's, there's, I think there's lots more going on. There are some online courses mm -hmm. um, and some of them are free things that you can kind of do in the MOOCs. Um, those kind of, have you heard of MOOCs? No. Massive online. I like it already. What are they called? Massive online something courses. So basically, like thousands, <laughs> thousands of people across the world can kind of dial in um, to what a university is kind of delivering and uh, follow a course. Oh, I've just signed up for one. Online. It's not called MOOCs, but I've just signed up for one in the, I Massive think open. it's Queensland or somewhere okay. like that in, in uh, Australia. I mean, I'm literally on it might week, be a week one. Maybe it is a MOOC. It could be a MOOC. I'm Massive open it. online course. I I'm, I'm going to look at it. It was free, so I'm going to look into it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've done a MOOC, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, there are good things out there. And there's, there's, you know, if you Google things and, you know, search online, there's lots of interesting stuff. Mm. The, um, uh, you know, a plug for the Behavioral Science and Public Health Network. And, you know, that's really trying to provide resources. And we're working with them and supporting them to help, you know, develop and provide resources to people. Mm. Uh, who are interested the behavioral and social science strategy that was kind of a key point was trying to say what are some of these different disciplines and how can they be applied to public health so that's a really good starting place and has some good links um we're shortly um very shortly in the next couple of weeks maybe a good little plug um we've commissioned uh, and been working closely with university college london um to develop a bit more of a a guide to behavior change. Uh, this is particularly uh, around the behavior change wheel and associated tools and techniques mm -hmm. um, to try and make it easier for people to access some of those tools and, and pick up about them. So that should be coming out uh, first of November, I hope. And alongside that, um, Health Education England will be publishing uh, their behavior change development toolkit and literacy framework. There's l so there's lots and a lot of these things are in the roadmap of the strategy if people take a look. So there are mm. things and products coming out that as a system, we're trying to understand where some of the gaps are and, and um, through some of the conversations uh, and sort of conferences and seminars that are being um, supported, we kind of understand what some of the needs are for people at the local level and try and see what we can do to plug those needs. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, and then um, finally, where can people go to find out a little bit more about your work and the work you're doing with, with PHE generally? Oh, absolutely. So probably the easiest thing is if you um, Google PHE and behavior, PHE behavior, put that in. Okay. Um, I think it comes up um, near the top there. So you'll, there's a sort of 
Public Health Matters blog. Um, and then there's a kind of, we call it a collection. So there's a Behavioural Insights page, which has a number of the kind of different pieces of work that we've been talking, some of the stuff that we've been talking about today. So the Behavioural and Social Science Strategies on there. Um, it links to some of the kind of um, strategic behavioural analysis that we've been doing and um, some of the sort of interventions and evaluations that we've been doing as well mm. are up there. And more stuff is coming out. There's a, there's a pipeline of work that is coming out. So um, we try and publish to a lot of our work in the peer-reviewed literature, so we mm -hmm. get that uh, quality of peer review and scrutiny um, in the process. So Anywhere specific, or do you quite just, a lot just of go out to the... Um, to it, it, the different journals, depending on the audience and the type of, uh, right. type of work it is. So... Um, but, you know, if you either PubMed or Google Scholar or, mm -hmm. you know, one of those reputable um, places, you know, um, many of them you can kind of Google and find um, find our colleagues. And so maybe I just need to say as well a, bit, a big thanks. I mean, it's um, to the team. And that's really important for me to say. It's yeah. sort of um, I kind of facilitate uh, and hopefully enable um, some of this work and kind of see you know, have some of the kind of strategic ideas about where we should be going as a team and where some of the gaps and partnerships are. So we have a really great multidisciplinary team from different backgrounds. Most people are quite sort of academically trained. And like I said, that kind of academic and theoretical rigor is really important to us. But we're very much um, keen about how we apply that to policy and practice. What, what is interesting in, in hearing you say that, and I, I thought this earlier, but I didn't get around to bringing it up, um, was... Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment by Matthew Side about um, diversity and how it increases the effectiveness of teams and mm. hearing what you're saying there about the different backgrounds and stuff. And, and the reason is because of the fact that you don't all have the same blind spot and you don't approach things in exactly the same way. And I think that's a real strength, perhaps, of your team and of a, a whole systems approach generally and systems thinking generally that you don't all have the same blind spot and you, you can all see things from a different perspective and when that comes together that's actually a yeah. really strong proposition yeah no i think as i mean as aspects of diversity and bringing in um people from multi, you know different dis different backgrounds in a multidisciplinary disciplinary approach is is really valuable we do get a lot of challenge in the team and mm. i think that's in a in a very positive way yeah, um good. challenge each other which is um which is really good um and i think the it's not just within the team but also um across the organization and outside. We'd, like I said, a lot of the work that we've done is very much in partnership across the system. Mm. And, I mean, the behavioral and social science strategy is, is a prime example about the, the number of different views. I mean, trying to get sort of consensus mm. is can be difficult and challenging, but the, the value you do get when you, you know, make a step forward is, is really powerful. Um, we obviously, I think, just wanted to say that, you know, our team, we think quite a lot about the... the the complement of our team and the different skills that go into that. And I mentioned earlier around the sort of health psychology and, and behavioral economics, but I think it's really important to say, and we're kind of moving more in a direction of kind of fusion or matrix working, whatever you want to call across different teams. And I think, you know, there's our marketing colleagues, we have a huge amount to learn from them in terms mm. of mm. making things attractive and um, the, the usability and engagement factor and I mean not just that but I mean we have a lot to learn from them um, I mean marketing have the, been doing the, behavioral science the for years the, exactly the, name. the power of marketing and then um, also our policy colleagues obviously who are kind of experts in their field in whether it's um, 
whether it's smoking or antimicrobial resistance or, or um, screening or whatever area. So close working with them. I think there's a really, we've kind of talked briefly about sort of tech and digital, but the really interesting closer working that we need to forge with data scientists mm. um, is, is really exciting. Um, and sort of just coming back to what we're saying about sort of um, economists and kind of close working with economists. So I think there's a real kind of a real mix uh, of skills, um, digital and user-centered design um, and that more sort of design approaches um, and really bringing in the users into the process is is really valuable as well. So and a lot of the, we have a lot of those teams here within PHE. So. I learn every day, really. Um, mm. And that's one of the things that probably keeps me going in my job is, is learning, learning every day uh, from the people around me. Tim, it's great. I, I, I'm nearly, nearly going to let you go, um, but I can't until I've asked you about... You. The last time I saw you, you told me that you met Dan Ariely uh, <laughs> and that he knew who you were, which was a, a revelation to you. But um, the, I, I love his books. I think he, his books were my first port of call for behavioural economics, understanding, and, and just I think he's got a really engaging style. Can you, can you just tell us a little bit about that, <laughs> about how you, what, what happened when you met Dan and, and uh, what was he like? Oh, dear. I wasn't going to name drop. Do it. Uh, I met it. him this morning. You're joking. <laughs> so you've met him twice. So he comes. He he um he comes across um from from time to time. Uh, a few times. I think one of the that's one of the the great things about my job, I suppose, is um meeting some of these people. Uh, I've met Cass Sunstein a few times and Richard Thaler, and you know, I mean, I love I love hearing Cass Sunstein talk. If there's you know one person, um, the way he thinks about some of these like big complex issues of um you know, violence and conflict around the world mm -hmm. and how behavioral science and behavioral insights can, um, things around trust and, and fake news and things, you know, he's like tackling some of these really sort of yeah. big global issues. And that's, that's a really valuable approach, I think, and thinking about how behavioral insights can tackle some of those things and not just, you know, there's a lot of nudge, which is around changing letters and communications things. And I think mm. those are really powerful, but the things that kind of drive some of the, um, you know, he talks a lot about the polarization and what are the sort of um, biases and heuristics that drive polarization of society and stuff like this mm -hmm. um, are fascinating and really inspiring. So, yeah, Dan Dan has uh, quite a close working uh, relationship with um, Her Revenue and Customs, uh, and, you know, advising there. And uh, I mean, there's so many people across the system, um, you know, Susan Mickey and Robert West, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Linking in, you know, they're, they're an inspiration. Uh, Falco Snehotter in, in Newcastle, um, Ivo Villever at Warwick. I mean, these. I'm really keen on the UK um, academics and experts. Well, I think sometimes we look across to across the pond. I think it's because they popularised it more. They have popular, yeah, and exactly. But I think that's why I think uh, that's why I'm keen to kind of. <laughs> ah, so you're bigging up the UK support academic. support some of the UK academics, yeah. uh, which is also kind of you know groundbreaking, and there's some amazing stuff that's that's going on. Yeah, um, well, we will be having Ivo on in soon. academia here. I'm just just so in the process of sorting that now. Falco, absolutely. I think, is coming on. Great. And I'm still waiting for an, for an invite from. Uh, I think Angel Chater has said that she's gonna she's gonna send across. Brilliant. A warm introduction to Robert and, and uh, Susan. Do, but do, if we can do, get Dan Ariely on, I'll, I'll be very <laughs> happy. So if you could introduce that, that would be that would be amazing. Do approach some, um, do approach some sociologists as well. Uh, well, I had and Mike, people from other disciplines. Mike Kelly yeah, two brilliant. weeks ago, yeah. sociology background. Yeah, Mike's fantastic. Director of Nice. 
brilliant. And we talked about loads of geeky sociology stuff. I loved it. Yeah, um, but we will have more sociologists on. Absolutely, he's great. Very, very eloquent indeed. Um, but and yeah, he's met, definitely made. He's met Daniel Kahneman. Yep. So you fantastic. Know, another Nobel Prize winner. Fantastic. Um, speak to David Halpern. I've tried to actually. So again, I'm going to after after we finish, I'm going to get you to um, <laughs> send out some some emails and just some warm introductions to these people because I think it's it's really good. And we're coming to a close now anyway. So I just want to say thanks um, for doing the show um, anyway. It's really interesting as I knew it would be, and I think people will love hearing about um, the stuff that's going on nationally. And it's it's great to hear how it ends up in the in the hands of people on the ground because I think it could be easy for people to think, oh, PHE, yeah, they're just a big big national body that, that doesn't actually they just make policies up but actually there's a lot of stuff that goes on that i i'm sort of aware of because i, I see you from time to time and hear how it's actually ending up in that i mean that, that thing about the cervical screening is a, it, i mean that's a huge deal and that's just one of the things that you talked about today so um thanks for going through all that stuff i think it's really interesting for people um and um if anyone wants to get hold of tim can they do that on twitter are you on twitter are you on uh, yeah i do tweet and, and linkedin Okay. Um, so can I do on LinkedIn? Chin work chat is board. always <laughs> pressured. What about what about so your uh, Twitter handle? What's your Twitter it handle? Be, it can be difficult. Uh, it's just at Dr. Chadbourne. Okay, great. Um, so if you want to get hold of Tim, you can do that uh, at Dr. Chadbourne. Um, but also, if um, if I want some, if you if you can get in touch with Tim via Twitter and, and get him to lean on some of these academics <laughs> that he's just mentioned, then that would be great. If you want to hear from them, so yeah, thanks so much for your time, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Uh, yeah, get involved. It's uh, an exciting area. A lot of growth, a lot of interest from right at the top of the kind of policy um, leadership um, out through academia in business and the private sector uh, and the charity sector. So many areas. Um, just encourage people, yeah, think about impact. Think about reducing inequalities um, and think about return on investment and how how we can improve the public's health. Great, thanks. I just want to say thanks again there to Tim for uh, a fantastic interview. Really enjoyed hearing about his experiences uh, through all the different government departments and, and all of the stuff that's going on in all the different government departments as well with the um, behavioural insights and behavioural science. Uh, it just shows how important it actually is and how well it's being used. And also wanted to let you know that PHE have just released a new paper um, called Achieving Behaviour Change, a guide for local government and partners that came out this month. So if you want to Google that and check it out, it's, it's basically for people who are working in local authorities who have, as part of their remit, to, uh, the um, responsibility to try and help people change their behaviour. So it's worth going and checking out. And if you've got any feedback on it, then please do feed it back to Tim. Next month will be an interview with Sam Seltzer, who is a behavioural scientist working in industry and also the person who pulls together and sends out the Habits Weekly newsletter, uh, which is packed full of really interesting and useful articles, videos, blogs and, and all sorts of other content. Um, so it, uh, it's a really great interview. I had a lot of fun talking to Sam and I'm excited to put that one out. Also, from a PhD perspective, we'll, we'll soon be interviewing um, the CEO of PHE, Duncan Selby. So that will be coming out in the next few months, just to, to whet your appetite about who we've, who we've got coming out uh, in the next few months. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on at Stu underscore King underscore HH. Uh, you can search me on LinkedIn and follow my blog on www.busybodies.com and click on the Professionals tab followed by Stu's blog. 
Um, and if you enjoyed the show, please, please go on and rate it on whatever medium that you listen to it on, um, because it's really important to share your experience of, of the show and to tell colleagues and friends about it. Uh, because there's a really good practice. I think that Tim's interview today is a really good example of some of the great practice that's going on out there um, that, that we should be sharing with, with other people um, in our field. Um, okay, thanks for listening. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, don't forget to head to bsphn.org.uk to find out more about the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. Uh, we had a fantastic conference last month and we had some really good feedback from a lot of the people who attended the event. So um, if you're interested in joining the BSPHN, you can do so for £25 if you're working and just £10 if you're a student or if you're not working. Um, so head over to there now and um, I hope to catch you next time. Oh, 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 oh,